God and fellowship, it really is the only place to be. Um, I hope you really did enjoy your Christmas and New Year's break. Some got more, some got less. I hope you enjoyed your time with your family, maybe traveled. Maybe they traveled to see you, but of course now's the time. We're all back to work, back to school, uh, and, and we're back to regular Bible studies. And uh, that's what we're going to be doing. All our ministries, all our classes are back on schedule. And if you've been a part of our church for some time, you're probably aware that the first Sunday of a new year, I always like to take that Sunday, and it's not going to be a continuation of the series we've been studying, but I like to start each new year with a vision for the coming year. I, I believe that that's part of my job for you is to cast vision. Um, the Bible says very clearly, you're probably familiar with this verse in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse number 2, the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Uh, we do have vision and direction for ministry here at First Baptist Church, and, and really that's what today is all about, to kind of set the direction and set the vision. And, and if you're a guest with us today, we are so excited that you're with us, but just know that this is not a typical Sunday. It is in the sense that we're all worshiping and studying, but the message, we typically have a series that we're studying, a book study in the book of First Corinthians, for example. Uh, but today's just a little bit different. Uh, but we, we want to set a vision and remind us of the vision and, and keep the focus forward. Why? Because it says that he may run that readeth it. I want us all to be running in the same direction. Uh, you know, you, I've been in churches where everybody's running. <laughs> They're not all running the same direction. And uh, the hope would be is that we get the same vision, we get the same heart, and we get the same direction. If you happen to be with us last week, we took a look back at 2018 and, and we just allowed the Lord to remind us of some of the amazing things that He's done in and through and with First Baptist Church. And, and, and we, it was exciting, actually. It was, it was, it was very encouraging. And uh, honestly, I, I don't just say this because it's probably what I should say. I actually truly anticipate even greater things in 2019. I, I really do. And so I'm excited to be able to share some of those things with you. And so uh, I want to direct your attention today. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 30, so you might want to get your Bibles and open them up and get ready. 1 Samuel in the Old Testament chapter number 30, and uh, I believe that it will give us the framework to understand the idea and principles that uh, I think God's trying to communicate with us as we head into 2019. Uh, there's actually a lot of insight from this section of Scripture. It's a fairly lengthy section that I'll be reading shortly. And uh, you can follow along when we get to that point. But before we do, let's just take a minute. Let's pray. Let's ask God to just center our hearts and focus us on hearing from Him. And uh, we'll give Him the praise for it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, as always, to be able to be together in the house of God. The house of God is the gathering of your people. And so thank you so much that we can be together with one another. I'm thankful that we have your word. It's holy. It's pure. It's perfect. It's preserved. We have it in our language. We can understand it. And I pray that you'd take it today and you'd speak to our hearts. You'd help us to learn some things. And I pray that you would give us focus and vision for the coming year. Give us vision for our lives. Give us vision and purpose for our role in your plan and your mission to this lost and dying world. I, I pray that this day would be a spark, that this message would be an encouragement. I pray that it would lift heavy hearts and that it would uh, give strength and encouragement to those of us who have been laboring and just need to be reminded that it's really important and it's really worth it. And Lord, we can't do any of it if we don't labor together with you. So we ask that you would guide and that we would just follow. That's our desire and that's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to look at it a couple of different ways and I think it's fair to start out just by looking at this passage of Scripture historically, give you a little background before we get started, what's going on in the book of 1 Samuel about this time um, is that David is on the, he's on the run. He's fleeing from King Saul, the king of Israel, and uh, Saul's persecuting David. This would be the time when David didn't really do anything wrong, but Saul's just jealous and angry, and you know he's throwing javelins at him, and he's setting guys out to try and kill him, and David's on the run. He's trying to protect himself, and in this section of the book, what we see is that David and many of his men that follow him are living in the land of the Philistines. 
Uh, they're living in enemy territory. Why are they living among the Philistines? Well, they're living among the Philistines. Uh, at some level, you might say David's a little bit fearful, but really he's living among the Philistines for his own protection. Uh, Saul probably isn't willing to take on all the army of the Philistines just to get David. And so he's kind of hiding out at that place. He realizes it's probably a safe place. And David makes some moves that probably aren't the most honoring. He joins with the Philistine army. He becomes a faithful helper to the king of the Philistines. And actually in chapter number 29, there's a point where the Philistine army is going to go out to fight. And David had helped them in the past. But at this time, they're going to go out and they're going to fight Israel. And David gets all his men to line up with the Philistines and to go, but the elders of the Philistines come together and they, they counsel the king and they're like, look, we know that David's your pal and all, but don't you remember the things they used to say about David? Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. How do you know this isn't a setup that he's going to get into battle with us and turn on us and kill us with his people? And so you, make Dave, you send David back home. David's not going to war with us. Okay, and so in a secular sense, that was wise, actually. And so they send David back home. And that's what we see in chapter number 30. So he's not going out to battle with the Philistines against Israel. He's sent back to the place where he and his men had camped. It's a town called Ziklag, and uh, that's where they go. So they're going back home. They're just going to wait it out. And what happens is they get to Ziklag, and they find that Ziklag has been taken, that the town has been entirely burnt down, and that their family, the, the women and the children, have all been taken captive. And uh, chapter 30, therefore, is, I put this just a sentence in your notes, it's the story of David and his men on a search and rescue mission to restore lost families. That's what the story is in general. Okay, David and his men are now going to go out and try and hunt down the Amalekites who sacked their camp and took their people captive, and they're going to go and get them back. That's the story that we're going to get into. Are you ready? I'm going to do a lot of reading. So just, if, you know, if you're into reading through the Bible every year, just today, consider this your Bible reading day. I mean, we're going to read a lot, okay? So just, just follow along. 1 Samuel 30, we'll start at verse number 1. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein they slew not any either great or small but carried them away and went on their way so David and his men came to the city and behold it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep and David's two wives were taken captives Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite and David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Amen. And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue. For thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the six hundred men that were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where there were those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and four hundred men, for two hundred abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Besor. And they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he did eat and they made him drink water and they gave him a piece of cake of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him for he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. And David said unto him, to whom belongest thou and whence art thou? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me because three days agone I fell sick. We made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites and upon the coast which belongeth to Judah and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Canst thou bring me down to this company? And he said, Swear to me by God that thou wilt neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I'll bring thee down to this company. 
And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And David smote them from the twilight even to the evening of the next day, and there escaped not a man of them save four hundred young men which rode upon camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil, nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. David took all the flocks and the herds which they drave before those other cattle and said, This is David's spoil. And David came to the two hundred men which were so faint that they could not follow David whom they had made also to abide at the brook Besor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. Then answered all the wicked men and men of Belial, of those that went with David, and said, Because they went not with us, we will not give them aught of the spoil that we have recovered, save to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then said David, you shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given us, who hath preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. And it was so from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel unto this day. Now, that was a lot of reading, but I think the story kept moving, and I think you got the idea of what's really going on. So historically, you have the context and you have the story. What I really want to do is dive into this thing inspirationally. What are the practical things that we can learn from this story? How can we make personal and real association with this story so that it helps us in our lives today? Well, if you glance at your notes, you'll notice there's a lot of things written and there's a whole lot of blanks. Please don't be afraid. We will move quickly through this list, okay? So we're going to go back through this story. Before we do, I want to remind you of a couple of principles in your New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. A lot of you memorize this scripture, right? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All scripture. That means even the Old Testament stories. Those are profitable for you. That's what the Apostle Paul said. And he also said in Romans chapter 15 and verse number 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, meaning like the Old Testament, were written for our learning, so we can get something from this today, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. That's my prayer, that we will have hope and understanding and learning through this story in 1 Samuel chapter 30 and how it can be profitable to us today. Well, there's actually going to be 15 different points of application that I've noticed just literally reading through and gleaning some of the types and the pictures that are in the Bible. So don't fear. Let's just jump in. Number one, a lot of you like to try and guess ahead of time. A lot of you are going to guess this first one. David is a type of Jesus Christ. David is a type of Jesus Christ, and we're not going to spend a ton of time defending and proving all this. A lot of you are Bible students, and you know it, and if you're newer to the Scriptures, it's okay. You can go back and check it out on your own time. But Jesus Christ, among the many things that he's referred to as, he's referred to as the son of whom? The son of David. He, he is the Messiah. He is the son of David. And in this story, we see that David, right, is... is at a point in his life where he was previously anointed as king by Samuel, right? But he has yet to take the throne. And so interestingly, what we have here is a situation where Saul, who's a type of the Antichrist, is actually on the throne. And so the connection is to Jesus Christ and the picture that Jesus Christ, who is clearly anointed as king but has yet to return the second time, to assume the throne over the kingdoms of this earth, which are currently under the control, right, of the devil and his, and his men that he uses to lead it. David is a type of Jesus Christ. Okay, back in 1 Samuel chapter 30, number 2. David is temporarily living in a foreign land. Uh, Philistia is not his home. Judah is his home, right? And like the Lord Jesus Christ... When he left his home in heaven in glory, he came to earth to dwell for a time. And when he came to earth to dwell for a time, he was a stranger, a pilgrim, 
in a foreign land. In fact, when he's questioned about it in John chapter 18 and verse 36, it says, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, that's the key word, by the way, now is my kingdom not from hence. Don't be confused as, by the way, some other English translations your Bible want to promote, they leave out that word now, is that my kingdom is not from hence now. It's going to be. Oh, I'm going to come back, and my kingdom will absolutely be earthly eventually, right? But now it's not. So they're temporarily... Jesus Christ was living on earth. Temporarily, David was in a foreign land. Number three, David has men that follow and serve him. David has men that follow and serve him. He's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, so we're not surprised to see that, right? In John chapter 12 and verse 26, Jesus says, If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. This is no stretch. We understand that. We should all be followers and servants of our King, who is the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, David has men and his men have lost their family members. So in this story, we have lost family members. They return to Ziklag and they get to the encampment and, well, their family's lost. They're gone. And, uh, man, the town is burned up and David's moved with compassion, and he begins to weep, and they all begin to weep for the loss. David has two wives. I know that's weird. Actually, in the Bible, David has like seven or eight wives. Not saying that was right. It's just true, and in this story, there's two of them that are mentioned that it is true that David, the type of Jesus Christ, has wives that are Gentiles, which is a type of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Gentile bride of our Jewish kinsman redeemer. And so they've lost their family members. And so number five, the women and children are taken captive by the enemy. There's an enemy. He goes in, he conquers the land, and he takes captive the people. Spiritually speaking, that's what we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 26. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. You know there's people in this category. Uh, there's, there's people who have yet to come to a full and clear understanding of Jesus Christ and who he is and surrender their heart and their life to him. And man, it's just like candy from a baby. The devil can just snatch those people up and he takes them captive and he twists their lives and he destroys their lives and he does different various things with their lives. And, and they don't even realize that they're servants to sin. They're servants to the enemy. They're servants to him and all that he's done and all that he's doing in their life. And the devil, it's almost like a game to him. He can do this. He sets up snares. He sets up traps. And people fall into these traps all the time. And so these women and these children have been taken captive by the enemy. And, well, lost people all over the world today are taken captive by the enemy. And, by the way, those of us who are the followers and the servants of David, when we see that, you know what our reaction should be? It should be compassion. We should weep. We should weep for the people who are lost and taken captive. We should, we should do whatever we need to do to rally the troops and go to get them. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's define the enemy back in 1 Samuel 30. They're the Amalekites. The enemy is Amalek, and Amalek most frequently in the Bible is going to represent the flesh. It's going to represent the flesh. How do you know that? Well, let's just look at it. Who is Amalek? If you go back and you study the genealogies and the first time he's mentioned and where does he come from, Amalek is a son of Esau. Those of you who know the Bible, you know Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. Esau is the guy who was the firstborn and therefore would have had the right of the firstborn and all the extra blessings and privilege that go with it. But Esau was hungry and he needed something to eat. And Jacob had something to eat. And Jacob was sneaky. And Jacob said, I'll cut you a deal. Sell me your birthright as the firstborn blessing and I'll give you this bowl of soup. And Esau said, well, you know, I'm hungry. What good is the birthright? Can't eat that. Okay, I'll make the deal with you. And ultimately, you know, it leads to an entire history of nations of people. As Jacob represents the nation of Israel and Esau represents the nation of Edom and their enemies throughout history and all these different things. Well, Esau, because of that pivotal moment in his life, 
favored his flesh. He was concerned about his fleshly desires and lusts that he went after to the exclusion, even the detriment of the spiritual blessings in his life. Esau's all about the flesh, and his sons are the sons of one who are all about the flesh. Am, Am, Amalek, excuse me, and the Amalekites, well, they're, they're going to represent the flesh. And the battle that we have with the flesh, people are taken captive every single day by the lusts of their own flesh. You know, sometimes we give the devil too much credit. <laughs> now, in a sense, he set up the system, okay? But people are, man, they're tempted and enticed and led away and drawn away of their own lusts. And they're drawn away from King Jesus. That's who they're drawn away from. So that's why the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2 and Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, it's of the world. It's of the world. So I want you to notice number seven in your notes because this is where it starts getting really good. The Lord explicitly tells David to save them. David's like, I'm not sure what to do. And he did the right thing. He said, well, I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to ask the Lord what he says. And the Lord specifically said, go Go get them, and you will certainly recover every one of them. In other words, there is an explicit, clearly written, okay, command for David to go and recover these people who are lost. Are you tracking with me? David prays, should I go? The Lord says, go. And so he goes, and he pursues recovering the family and That means he has to go find them. That means he has to go fight for them. That means that he has to win them back. You know what also it means? It means in order to do so, he has to, catch this, travel through more foreign lands. He's got to travel through foreign countries in order to get to the place where he can find the people who are actually his family and win them back. So, explicitly told by God, well, that shouldn't surprise us. That's the Great Commission. That's what God specifically tells us and commands us to do in Matthew 28, 19, right? Go, he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. That means you're going to do some traveling through some foreign territories. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. So this is our command, just like David and just like the followers of David, to go and to go wherever it takes us, wherever it needs to be gone, because there's people who need to be rescued. He says you're going to have fruit if you do that. And that's what Jesus says to his disciples, John 15, 16, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So God is guaranteeing some level of success. God is guaranteeing that if you'll obey my command, if you'll listen to my voice, and if you'll do what I say, you will find fruit. So number eight, David is successful, of course, and he returns the captives. We see that in verse number 18 of our text back here. And Well, he returns the captives. That should remind you of Ephesians chapter 4 and Verse number 8, because that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did, where it says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. That's what Jesus Christ did. The context of Ephesians chapter 4 is his death, his burial, and then his resurrection again. What did Jesus Christ do during that time? Well, he went into the heart of the earth, into a place referred to as Abraham's bosom or paradise, where the faithful saints of the Old Testament were held captive, and they could not ascend into the third heaven until Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, took the keys of death and hell and opened those prison bars and led those who were captive, and he made them his captives and took them on to glory. He led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. Well, that's what he does. And people that were captive are set free by the blood of Jesus Christ, like we sang about, and brought home to paradise. And you know, 
doing this mission, being one of David's mighty men, being a part of the army that goes and travels foreign lands and, and takes care of this work and takes this seriously and listens to the voice of the Lord and weeps over the lost, well, that's, that's hard. It is hard work. Don't kid yourself. And so number nine in your notes, not everybody is prepared for frontline warfare. That's just the facts. In verse number 10, we see David pursued, but 200 of them, well, they, they stayed behind. Why? It says that they were so faint, they couldn't go on any further. Well, historically, maybe they were older gentlemen. Maybe they were just weak. Maybe they were worn out. Maybe they hadn't eaten properly. I don't know what the deal was. It doesn't really say. It just says they were so faint. They didn't have enough strength necessary to pursue the battle even further on. So there came a point where they said, we've gone as far as we can go. We just, we're with you. We just can't do it. We can't physically go any further. Because the fact of the matter is, well, it's, it's hard. And there's not, there, nor should there be, there's no shame in that. That's just a fact that some people will travel and go all across the world to win people to Jesus Christ, and some will just stay home. Uh, we see that all the way back in the book of Acts in many places. I want to point out chapter 8 and verse number 1. It says, at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Notice, and they were all scattered abroad into foreign lands, right? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Oh, wait, not all of them, except the apostles. Now, are you trying to say the apostles were too weak to be? I don't really know. It doesn't actually say. You can draw your own conclusions. I know this. A bunch of people went out. Some of them stayed back. I know that, right? Uh, we get a little better picture of probably what we would model today in Acts chapter 13 because it's Antioch, and the church in Antioch is really the model New Testament church for us today, more so than the church in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 13, first three verses, now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they, the church leaders, right, had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. They sent whom? They sent Barnabas and Saul away. They, the rest of the church, well, they stayed home. The rest of the church stayed home. <laughs> of course, it makes sense. Of course, it's going to be that way. That's almost too obvious to even waste time talking about. But I want you to understand that while those that stayed, stayed, at the same time while others were advancing the front forward, Go back to the story in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Those men that stayed behind at the brook Besor, it doesn't say it, but I can't help but wonder, do you think they prayed for their brothers? Do you think they thought about them and prayed for them and, and, and couldn't wait to anticipate some good news and hear again that, hey man, maybe, maybe the Lord will be gracious to us and let's pray that God protect them and that we don't lose any more. We've already lost our families. We don't lose any more. You don't think that church in Antioch prayed fervently for Barnabas and Saul and their mission that they went out to carry the gospel all around the world? Of course they did. Of course they did. So back in 1 Samuel chapter 30, what do we see in the narrative? Well, while they started going, the first thing that they find, this is very interesting, is an Egyptian. So an Egyptian is a Gentile, right? He's an unsaved Gentile. He's passed out. Malnutrition. Who knows exactly what? He's in a coma. I don't know. So they feed him. They give him to drink. And it says in verse number 12, his spirit came again to him. His spirit came again to him. Well, you know what that tells me? Number 10 in your notes, reviving the Egyptian pictures evangelism. That's a picture of evangelism. While they're on their way advancing forward, they come across somebody. They, it wasn't even necessarily their target. They're looking for their family. They come across somebody, well, who didn't have a spirit in them. And the spirit returns in the body of an unsaved Gentile. How about that? 
This Egyptian tells his story to King David. And his story is, he says, who are you? Where are you from? What have you been doing? And he's like, well, I'm a servant to the Amalekites. So this unsaved Gentile Egyptian was previously a servant to the Amalekites. Was previously a servant to the enemy. Was previously a servant, let's make our picture complete, to his own flesh. That's who he was. But David says, hey, oh, so you were a part of the deal at Ziklag. He said, um, could you help us find that group of people? And so he's like, well, yeah, if don't kill me, but yeah, I can, I can help you. And he's like, okay, deal, you got deal, no problem. And what happens is, is that guy, that new, newly saved Gentile convert, number 11 in your notes, now that he's saved, a new convert serves his new king. That's what he does. He switches alliance and he begins to serve David in conquering the Amalekites. You know that's what you do in your life. You come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. He takes your feet out of that miry clay and sets it on a solid rock and gives you a new heart and a new spirit and he changes your life and you're no longer interested in serving your flesh. You're no longer interested in the world and the devil. You're not interested in serving that stuff anymore. You're here to serve Jesus Christ. Your allegiances have changed. And that's what we see in the Egyptian. That's what we see in this story. This is a great story. Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's how we all were before Christ. But after we met him, after we met him, well, Colossians 3.24 kicks in. Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. Why? For you serve the Lord Christ. You serve the Lord Christ. Because a new convert serves his new king. And I'm not here to be anybody's judge. That is above my pay grade. I don't know if you really know the Lord or not. All I know is if you're truly serving the Lord, well, it should be evident. It should be fairly obvious. I'm really never, I never have been that impressed with somebody who's just willing to say, I believe. I believe a lot. I believe really hard. I've heard people say stuff like that. I believe all the time. But they live their life continually in service to their own flesh, to this world system, and can I say under the umbrella covering of the devil. Nothing's changed in their life. Nothing's any different. There's no obvious change in the way that they live their life and carry themselves. The language that they use doesn't say that they're new creatures. The deeds that they do don't say that they're new creatures. The things that they put out in their life doesn't say that they're new creatures. Well, you know, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, and that's probably a duck. <laughs> probably not a sheep. That's just kind of how it works. Well, verse number 12, as God said, his word comes true, of course, David defeats the enemy, right? Like it says in Galatians 5, 24, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh. Kill them, man, kill them all, take no prisoners. Crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. And when he defeats the enemy, he recovers two things. The most important, obviously, is the first one, souls. The family's restored, y'all. Mission accomplished, right? David's men, under David's leadership, restore people back to a family relationship. That's what it's all about, y'all. That's why we're still breathing free air. That's why after our salvation, the Lord didn't just immediately rapture us out of here. We got a job to do. And we're on a mission together with our King Jesus. And it's to recover souls. But it's not, the good news, here's some good news. It's not just souls. Wait, there's more. <laughs> we also get the spoil, right? The spoil of war are the rewards. It's the stuff. 
It's the things you take from the enemy. Well, they're all dead anyway, so you take their stuff, right? They do that all the time in war. Well, you know that the Bible says that those that labor in the harvest, they're also going to reap the rewards, right? There's going to be rewards in eternity. There's going to be crowns, right, that are given out. And the Bible speaks of many crowns. I wanted to draw your attention just to one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ is coming, sometimes referred to as a soul winner's crown. Uh, if you're out actively laboring to win souls for the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through your, as well as others, effort, well, there are crowns and rewards and spoil that you get in on eternally. Why? Because God is good. At the end of the day, if that ever happens through you, did you really do it? No, you didn't even really do it. God did it. You made yourself available, right? So in a sense, he's the only one that deserves the crowns, right? But he loves you. He's good. He gives them to you. So, man, life is good. Things are going well. So, now they're going home, they're, they're taken, and nobody's been killed. They got all the women and the children, and they're coming home. And upon returning to the camp, man, there's these 200 guys that stayed behind at the Brook Besor. Well, one of the ways you can study your Bible is just to study what some of these names in the Bible mean. What do they represent? There's a lesson to be learned in that. And Well, Besor, the name literally means cold or fresh or a place of good news. Well, isn't that interesting? So the Proverbs say in Proverbs 25, 25, as cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. So these guys stayed home, and I think it's fair to assume that they were probably in prayer for God's protection and victory, right? And so they're just, they're for sure anticipating and waiting for good news of victory. They're waiting to be restored with family, new family again. And uh, they happen to be waiting at a place that the very name means good news. That's what it means. They received good news from a foreign land, right? That's like cold water to a thirsty soul. They're all reunited. They received their family members once again. But don't you know it, that just at the time of the greatest victory, just at the time of the greatest joy, you know, how, you know how the terrain works. You climb and you work and you fight and you get to the pinnacle of the mountain. Man, life is good. Well, when you're at the top, there's only one way left to go. <laughs> we usually use it the other way. When you're down so low in the valley, I mean, the good news is there's only one way to go and that's up. Well, when you're at the very top, I mean, you know, brace for impact. <laughs> because things might just start to change. Well, that's what we see, right? Number 14, among the soldiers or David were some men that were called the men of Belial. Well, that's just one of the terms for the devil. Wait a minute. Men of the devil among David's men. In fact, the next verse after that, well, that, that was in verse 22, but in the next, it, said, it goes on that David calls them brethren. Isn't that something? I mean, people involved in the fight, people involved in the ministry, people involved in the labor and going after the enemy, people who have been fellow soldiers with you just like that will turn on you. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? So Jesus says in Matthew 7, 15, about these wolves in sheep's clothing. Watch out for those guys. Watch out for those guys. What is the characteristic that we see about these guys in our story? Well, they're actually kind of selfish, aren't they? They don't want to share the rewards, do they? They're like, hey, we did all the work. You guys are too tired. You stayed home. Look, take your wife. I don't want her anyway. Take your kids. I'm keeping the stuff, man. I did the work. I'm keeping the stuff. You can't have it. But they are at Besor, and Besor is a place of good news. So there is good news. Lastly, number 15, 
We all get rewards if we're a part of the team. Can I read to you again verse 24? David's response to these men. For who will hearken unto you in this man? I just, listen, y'all read the Bible the way you want to read it. I read it the way I like reading it. I love David saying, who's listening to you anyway? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> who will hearken unto you in this man? That's just, a, that's just an old English way of kind of giving him a face job. I think it's awesome. But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. <laughs> Thank you, Lord Jesus. King David rebukes those men and assures that everybody will be partakers in the rewards. It's not determinate upon your geographic location. All that really matters is that you're a part of the team. Some will stay and some will go. And regardless of where you find your lot, hopefully you are doing it in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you need to be going, well, don't stay. And if you need to be staying, well, certainly don't go. And let's just be faithful. Let's just do what we need to do. I love reading in Revelation chapter 4, the end of that chapter, where it talks about the four and twenty elders. Uh, you know, big theological debate. Who are the four and twenty elders? Kind of hard to pinpoint. Generally speaking, understood to just represent the entire body of Christ. Those redeemed by the Lord in the church age. And if that's the case, it makes sense, right? So it says, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, worship him that liveth forever and ever. And notice what they did. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying... Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Remember when I said earlier, we don't really deserve any crowns anyway, do we? If anything good happens in and through us in our lives and ministry that earns a crown according to certain scriptures, they're given to us because of God's goodness. But the truth of the matter is they really belong to the Lord, don't they? Because He's really the one doing it, right? Well, rest assured, they will all be returned to the Lord. Because when we finally see Him, when we see Him face to face and we are in glory with Him, whatever it is that we may have earned, and don't kid yourself, these are earned rewards. This isn't just stay home and let everybody do the work and sit cross-legged and hope that you get in on stuff. These are people that are actively a part of the team. You just may not necessarily go all the way into the foreign land. Listen, if you're a part of that, you have earned some rewards. And if you've earned one crown, two crowns, three crowns, four crowns, five crowns, because there's five in the New Testament. Well, whatever it is you've earned, when you see Jesus, you realize, man, these aren't even mine. And they cast them at his feet. Because thou art worthy, O Lord. You're the one that did it, not me. I've told this story in the past that made a big impact on me, and so I'm going to share it briefly again. I, I, the fact that I can recount this story ought to say something to you. <laughs> I'm old enough now that I don't remember much about grade school in my life. But third grade, I happen to remember. Because in third grade, I was invited to a birthday party, and my friend Ron Howell, <laughs> had a birthday and my mom dropped me off and the house was full of kids and there was cake and there was games and there was all that stuff and I didn't really get the memo about bringing a present somehow I missed that and so the pe presents are gathered up on the table and mom had all the presents and I'm like well that's okay because there's a bunch of presents and there's a bunch of kids and I mean nobody really knows so after the cake and after some games mom's like okay Ron let's open all your presents and I'm thinking, okay. And so then he opens one. Well, this one's from Jimmy. Where's Jimmy? And they start going around. And I'm just like, I'm doing that, right? That really happened, by the way. I hope Ron Howell's out there. I hope he's doing good. I don't know. 
I felt like the biggest schmuck on the planet. Now let's remind ourselves of the four and 20 elders. You don't want to be the guy who shows up at the party without anything to give to Jesus. You don't want to be the guy who shows up. And by the way, the only way you get the gift to give to him is having paid the price of a sacrificed life to have served for him now, to have earned the crowns of rewards now, so that when you get there, you've actually got something to offer. And there will be people who are truly redeemed, thank the Lord for, for that, but have never lifted a finger and never lived one day to serve anybody but their selfish selves. And they'll stand before the Lord in glory, but ashamed. I was ashamed that day. And they'll stand ashamed. And by the way, as a third grader, I couldn't just like get in the car and leave, you know. I had to wait for my mom to come get me. I was stuck there, you know. So here's the deal, y'all. We're all in this together, right? So do what you can. I mean, if you can't shoot, carry bullets for somebody else. I mean, just get involved. Okay, that's, that's the story, and it's a beautiful story. And if you don't know how to put together the Bible that way, well, man, come back. Be a part of our church. Learn how to put the Bible together because we'll teach you. But it's a beautiful thing. All right, our last point. This won't take long. Locally, what does that mean for us specifically here at First Baptist Church in 2019? Well, let me just start briefly and talk to those of you who are guests. Fairly new to our church. You haven't been around a lot. You don't know a lot about who we are and what makes us tick. What do we do? So I put a couple of things in your notes for you. The first one is our mission statement. We have a mission statement as a church. It is making a difference by loving as Jesus loved, growing in the grace and knowledge of him, and sharing his message with the world. So those three key words, to love and to grow and to share, we strive to make those three words define everything that we do. And everything that we do at this church should fall into at least one of those three categories. In, the, in, the, in service to loving as Jesus loved, growing in the grace and knowledge of him, and sharing his message with the world. Okay, That's just a standard about who we are and what we do. How do we do it is what we call the path of growth. And home folks know this already, so very quickly, there's four steps on a path. You start with attending, you go to learning, you go to the next step of engaging, and the last step of leading. And so just very briefly broke down. Again, this is for the guests and people less familiar. Number one, if you don't know where to start, start. You, you're, congratulations, you're here. You're starting to attend. Fantastic. Okay, so attend faithfully every Sunday morning and begin to attend faithfully in our midweek life groups because this is a big group and that's a small group and they both have value. Begin to learn. Well, start taking part in our 9 a.m. Bible training hour and start getting involved in personal discipleship. What a wonderful opportunity that is for you to learn the Bible. That whole process of personal discipleship should take about a year of your life if you're faithfully doing it. Uh, step number three of engage is really defined by some higher level Bible classes that we offer called Ministry Tools and Training. Very clever title. It just means that we give you tools and training so that you can be a better minister of the Lord. That's all it means. And that course of study takes about two years. And so if you're going to do that, that's going to take a little while, but it's serious stuff and you're learning all kind of great things. And then the last step of leadership is a result of you participating in our four-year Bible Institute and, and, and working those things out in significant areas of ministry leadership among our body. Okay, that's generally, I don't have to go into a lot of detail, that is our vision. We are to write it and make it plain upon tables. This is how it's written and this is how it's plain upon tables. These things never change. Uh, if you come back next year, they'll be the same. Last year they were the same. This year they're the same. Why? Because it's biblical. <laughs> and because it works, by the way. They are simple. They are biblical. And literally, you can know this if you're a guest here and you're maybe praying about and searching for a church home, that we have something for you from the time that a person is a brand new convert in Jesus Christ into full maturity and ability to reproduce the life of Jesus Christ in others, to take you to even be ordained as a pastor and a missionary if you think that's what God wants for you. But for the family, for the home folk, okay, you guys knew that stuff already. What can we specifically expect 
in 2019. Well, I want you to pull this out of your um, handout this morning, and it is a calendar of events, and we printed it on cardstock so that you can maybe keep it in your Bible or put it on your refrigerator or wherever it is you like to put stuff and be reminded of it. There's a lot of things going on in 2019. Now, this is the calendar of major events. There's a lot more that we do. But these are the major events that are coming up in 2019. And, and again, I know you know how to read, but I just want to point out that the dates of each month, the things are listed that are on there. And so we haven't exactly landed on the dates for a discipleship retraining uh, and encouragement time. We're going to do that sometime early February. You'll hear more about that soon. There's a group that's already signed up and paid their money and locked in. It's going to be going to Malawi uh, near the end of February. Uh, there is a discipleship conference that all of our fellowship of churches participate in, and that's going to be in Cartersville, Georgia, uh, the 17th to the 20th of March. And anybody who has the ability to go down there in the Atlanta area, man, that's a great time. Uh, there's going to be a conference that I'm going to be teaching at down in the Dominican Republic at the end of that month. I've, I went last year, and I'm going to go again this year. This year it'll be focused on family issues. Last year it was about discipleship issues as we're working with uh, our, our missionary partner, the pastor Miguel Mercedes down there. Uh, in April, we will once again restart the REACH Missions Conferences. We took a couple of years and we didn't have those conferences. We're going to have that again in April. That's going to be a great time. We're going to go into a lot more detail about what our church is anticipating doing with the Horvath family and in the country of Hungary. Uh, you can be praying about that. We will be asking the church to consider uh, giving and offering financially to help offset the costs of the Hungarian orphan evangelistic camp this summer. It does cost in excess of $30,000 to pull off one of those camps. Uh, God put us in the richest country of the world for a reason, y'all. And uh, so, you know, we're going to hear from other missionaries. It's going to be a great time. Uh, in the month of May, we're going to have a Bible conference in Albania, something that I go to frequently and help just provide that service for them. Sometimes people join me uh, I usually have other pastors from other churches I bring with me to expose them to that ministry as well. It's been very fruitful for their ministry there. In June, we always have our youth camp the first full week of June, so that's always an exciting time. And at the end of June now, for the second year in a row, we're going to be going back to Santa Fe, New Mexico to do a children's camp. A lot of people did that last year. I've heard recently that most of the people who went last year enjoyed it so much they all want to go back again. I uh, don't know how exactly those details are going to work out. You'll hear more about that, but that's scheduled for the end of June. July, again, the summertime, a lot of people are free, a lot of mission trips. So we've got the Hungarian Orphan Camp again, and this year we're planning to do an Albanian Kids Camp. And so with Pastor Sazan, who started the Mana Feeding Center, and with Pastor Fadmir, who's also started a new church in the Tirana Duras area. If you don't know what that is, it doesn't matter. Their city's not far from each other. And we'll work with their kids, and we'll help them, and we'll love on them, and we'll do something there in the middle of the month of July. In August, we're planning a men's retreat together with Wildwood Baptist Church from the Toledo area, and uh, we're targeting going to the Columbus area, and we're, gonna, we're planning on doing a three-day retreat. So you men, uh, if, you, if that's something you can look forward to, maybe you can get some time off work. We'll leave on Thursday afternoon. We'll stay all day Friday, and we'll come back on Saturday, Saturday evening. Um, in fact, we are going to be kicking off a more significant, focused men's ministry in this church, church-wide, and, and hopefully, Lord willing, therefore rolling into the community to reach out to men in this community. I think it's critically important. It's, it, we've been behind the curve until now. We're really going to push that forward. I'm really excited about what can happen doing that. Um, summer's End Celebration is always a lot of fun at the end of the summer. We'll plan that for the last Sunday in August, as always. Uh, October is our annual Certainty Conference. That's a Bible conference, and the theme this year that we are going to study is going to be the subject of the local church. Don't let that fool you into thinking, I know about the local church. I come to one. Uh, no, there's a lot to understand about how God has chosen to work in and through the one and only vehicle that he has ordained to reach the world, and that is the local church. Uh, and we'll learn a lot of cool things about that when that time comes. And then at the end of the year, an event that just ended is the Mission Focus, which is always um, in Kansas City as well. So we don't know exactly the dates. We'll get to that as well. But I would encourage you to keep this handy and uh, just refer to it. Just go home and pray about it. And maybe God would have you and your wife or your family or your friend, maybe you would want to be a part of something like this. And, and you'll hear more about the details as time comes. But you can plan accordingly. Maybe you need to plan for your vacation time. I don't know. Very briefly, I want to wrap up with this thought. You look at these things and... 
Maybe you're a little overwhelmed. Maybe you think, oh my goodness, that is a lot of stuff. I mean, we have a fairly large church, but it's not that big, and that's fairly aggressive. I mean, how can you really plan to accomplish so much? And well, can I remind you, the only way that we can possibly take on accomplishing this much is because of the fruit of discipleship. It's because of that path of growth. It's because so many of you have participated in the path of growth and have grown and are continuing to grow and have, are learning and are taking on responsibility more and more that all of this can be decentralized and given out to many people to get a lot of things done for the Lord. This is exactly what He intends. So if I were just to ask you, if you have ever gone through the the, the series of lessons that make up personal discipleship, or if you are currently going through the series of lessons that make up personal discipleship as a teacher or as a student, I, I would honestly like for you just for a second, just stand up. If you've ever been through personal discipleship or are currently going through personal discipleship, and whoever runs the camera, if you can get a shot of the building, I'm telling you, you can't get under the... It's, it's overwhelming. Look around, y'all. This is like 85 to 90% of you. God bless you. Sit down. Listen. This thing, I mean, our, you know, our secret plot is working, y'all. <laughs> People are learning the Bible. People are getting trained. Uh, the next step of discipleship is that ministry tools and training set of classes that we've been doing for several years now. And you know what? We've already graduated in this two-year course 125 people, and this year are, are slated 41 more that are going to finish. Oh my goodness, and in our full-time Bible Institute, we've already graduated and ordained two. We're going to see two more graduate and finish by this summer, and there's a, roughly 12 men that are pursuing aggressively finishing the Bible Institute to consider, not all, but many of which considering, full-time vocational ministry. Uh, that's no small feat. We can, we can go after all these kinds of ministry opportunities. And again, these are just the major ones. There's a lot of other things we do, a lot, okay? Because we have a small army of soldiers. And we have a lot of trained leaders. And the more soldiers and leaders that we have, well, that's multiplied global ministry. And we are looking in the next well, two-year window for sure, to send out the Horvaths with their support raised to go live in the country of Hungary, and there's others behind them waiting, and soon enough that kind of thing will be happening. The question I'd like for you to consider as we wrap up now is, what does that mean to you? Where, where are you in this process? Where, what might God be asking you? This is New Year's. The New Year's is always the time to kind of take stock and, and, and analyze a little bit where you're at. And wherever you are, okay, where do you want to be? Okay, how do I get from where I am to where I want to be? So I put a few statements in your conclusion, and that's this. If you're new, well, can I recommend you get involved in training? I mean, if you haven't been discipled, get involved in discipleship. If you haven't been faithful to attend, just start showing up regularly. Catch the drift of what we're doing. You know, see if you can pick up what we're laying down. And uh, if you're interested, then, then dive in. If you're already trained, and that's why I had you stand up, look around, right? Well, then get involved in ministry. Uh, if we, we won't do this, but if I said, if you're actively ministering in a ministry of First Baptist Church and had you stand up, the numbers are significantly less than the number of you that stood up and said at some point you've been through personal discipleship. You know there's room for more to do more things. And you know what, if you can't ultimately go to foreign places, well, let's support those that do. If you can't go, support others, right? Amen. Let's tarry by the stuff here at home. Let's pray for those. Let's give financially so they can go. Let's wait at Besor for good news to come from a far country, right? So then at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll all part alike the rewards for all the work that is done. I know you're packing up your stuff and that's fine because we're about done, but can I just remind you who have been here regularly throughout 2018 in our Bible study in the book of 1 Corinthians and the theme of the Bible study in 1 Corinthians has been the power of community. This is the power of community. When we all do our part and we all work together and some go here and some stay there, and, but we're all pulling together 
We can have a multiplied global ministry. I'll never be sorry for that. I'll never feel bad about pushing you toward that end. You're an individual. You have free will. You do what you feel comfortable doing, but it's my job to cast a vision. It's my job to show you where we can go. And we'll be back in 1 Corinthians next week, and we'll be back in chapter number 12. And chapter number 12 so specifically lays out for us spiritual gifts and the specific ways that God has engifted each believer in Jesus Christ to do the specific thing that they are called to do for His glory. The body working together for Him. That's what we see. That's what we anticipate. So what does that mean for you? Well, I don't know where you're at. If you're not saved, you need to get saved. Maybe you're saved and you've never been baptized. You need to get baptized. Maybe you're saved and you're baptized, but you've never been involved in discipleship. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe you've been through all those things, but some things have happened and you've gotten carnal and you just need to repent. You need to get right with God. You need to start off this year fresh and you need to be right with the Lord. Maybe you're new here. Maybe you've been coming for a while, but you've never been a part of First Baptist Church as a member. And maybe God's just showing you, hey, this is the kind of church you can plant in. This is the kind of church I want to be a member of. I want to pull together with these guys. I agree. Man, we'd love to have you. That'd be awesome. Just let us know. I'm going to pray in a second, and Matt mentioned to you earlier, you have those connection cards. Man, if God's spoken to your heart, anything at all that's going on in your heart and your life, most specifically spiritual decisions, man, would you jot that down on that connection card? Would you be willing to let us know that that's what God's doing in your life so that maybe we can help you come alongside of you and help you learn and understand and take that next step? That's what we want to do. Let's pray together and we'll be done.